everyone. Welcome to another episode of Ascend and Transcend. Today's guest is very special. Her name is Michelle Anderson, and she is the founder of Love Over Addiction, which is a platform that provides insights, services, and support for people who love somebody who's suffering with addiction. So welcome, Michelle. I am very excited to be here. Yay. Well, we're happy to have you. So um, ever since the pandemic, it feels like addiction has probably crept into more people's lives or it's become more on the forefront of stuff that, you know, people are dealing with maybe on a day-to-day basis now. Can you give us a little bit of insight in background into your journey and how you came to found Love Over Addiction and tell us a little bit about what it is? Sure. Of course. Um, So I started Love Over Addiction about 12 years ago. Um, I'm dyslexic, and so numbers and letters are always kind of confusing. (laughs) So I don't quote me on 12 years, but it was a while ago. And I started it because when I was in my 20s, I was married to a very good man who I met in boarding school and um, fell in love with and had married, got married to him and had three kids did not know when I married him that he was struggling with addiction. I didn't grow up with addiction in my household, so I didn't know any of the red flags or warning signs. But I do remember on one of our very first dates, we went to we decided to like hang out just in my apartment. And so we went to the grocery store to get some food and there wasn't a lot of parking spaces. So I said, okay, I'll circle the parking lot. And you can run in and grab us whatever we need. So 20 minutes later, he comes back to the car and he has a case of beer for just the two of us. Hmm. And I thought to myself, well, gosh, that's interesting because that's a lot of beer for one night. But again, it's those kinds of red flags that if you are not aware of addiction, you kind of justify them or rationalize them. So we got married. I had three children with him and very quickly realized there's a significant problem here. I had no idea to what degree yet. I knew there was drugs involved. I knew he was drinking too much, but um, slowly over time, it started to become something where I realized no matter what I did, I couldn't help. No matter how much I loved him, my love was not enough to get him sober. Mm. And no matter how much I begged him or nagged him or even threatened him, I could not help this man become, live up to his full potential. So I used to go to the bookstores very late at night, usually after he had been binging, to look for books or resources and I'm going to date myself here, but this was before Google. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd go into the bookstores and look for the latest research or stories about people who had recovered from addiction. And so it was late one night. And, you know, when you're married to somebody that's struggling with this disease, you lose yourself. You lose all of your dreams, all of your ambition, And you just kind of get beaten down because there's this voice that enters your head. That's the voice of addiction that makes you feel just 
bad, Mm. guilty, like somehow this is your fault. And so when I got to the bookstore, I remember looking at myself and I had gained a significant amount of weight. I was wearing really ratty clothes that were like, I had a giant stain on my sweatshirt and just thinking to myself as I was walking in, I was so ashamed and embarrassed and thinking, where did I go? Because I used to be cute. Like I used to care. I used to put effort into my appearance. And that means that was just my physical self was just a metaphor for not being able to take care of my internal self, right? So I go into this bookstore and of course I'm in the self-help section and I'm scouring all the books, trying to figure, find the story, find the success story that can apply to me and my family so I can get my husband help. And so that you can think it's going to be okay. Yeah. So that you can fix it somehow. That's right. Right. That's right. Because I was still under the illusion that I could find the answers that would solve this problem. Right. Mm. So all of a sudden it hits me as I'm on my knees with the books scattered all around the floor. Uh, It was almost like just a, a, like a spiritual moment where I realized I'm looking for the wrong book. I'm looking for the books that will help me help my husband and really what I'm really need are some books that will help me, period. And so I kind of shifted my perspective and started looking for stories from women who love someone struggling with addiction. What did they do? Did they leave? Did they find anything that would help? How did they get them? How did they help their kids? And Mm. I realized there's no books. There's nothing on the shelves that had any kind of success stories about how these women got to feeling better, how they finally got that voice of addiction out of their head. Um, How did they communicate with their kids about what was going on with dad? So in that moment, when I was in that bookstore, I realized if I ever make it out of this relationship, or if he ever gets sober, I promise that I will spend the rest of my life writing that book or helping women who are sitting here like I am at their personal rock bottom, wondering what should they do? So it mm. it took several years from that moment at the bookstore to finally start putting into practice some ideas. And I, I was very methodical about it, about, okay, let me try, um, for example, let me try the idea of not... Um, scouring the house every day looking for the drugs and alcohol. Let me just surrender that. Like, let me just, if he wants to hide the drugs and alcohol, I'm just going to let that go. And I, w- I would document everything. Like, how did it make me feel? Did it work? Did I find happiness or freedom in this exercise? Or did it send me into a panic or anxiety? Um, and I did that for several years where I just applied all of these kind of ideas. and. Eventually, it led to me getting out of this very abusive, unhealthy relationship and leaving with my three kids where I was broke. You know, I had no money. I had no friends because when you love someone struggling with addiction, it becomes about trying to control them and you have no room for hobbies or friendships because that takes you away from your job and your job is to control to get them sober. 
So I had no friends, I had no money. I had to uh, call a shelter. Um, my family had no idea what was going on because I wanted to protect him because I loved them. That was what I was going to ask you is, did you con- like, did you take comfort or support from any friends and disclose that? I know that I've had friends who've had um, spouses who've been struggling with alcoholism specifically, and they've hidden it from everybody for a very long time. And even sometimes after they get a divorce, they're still hiding that and saying, you know, I think that they feel like it's somehow a reflection on them or, you know, they say it's embarrassing or that it's not their story to tell. How do you feel yeah, about that? I get that? asked that a lot. They're like, wait, you, you earn a living making a story out of somebody else, like out of addiction on somebody else. And I understand that kind of questioning. I understand where that comes from. But one of the things that we need to realize is that this is our story too, that this is a family. Exactly. It is your story. A a family disease. So for everyone, for every one person who is addicted to drugs and alcohol, seven people are affected, whether it's children, parents, employers, seven people. So all those seven peoples have a, have a right to their own story. I don't talk about whether he's sober or not. I protect his identity. Um, I, I, you know, work very hard to make it a point to keep it about me, my struggles, my journey, how this disease affected me. And I make sure to always say this disease happens to incredibly talented, good people. My ex-husband has more potential, you know, in his pinky than I do in my entire body. It's not so... I try to balance it out, but I think that that's still when you, when you keep it a secret, it's almost like you're keeping hold of shame. And the more that you talk about this, the more you share with people, the more people raise their hand and go, oh, that happens to me too. So I actually make it a point as part of my healing to share my story or share a part of my story with almost everyone because we need more people to stand up to say this is happening this is an epidemic this is a real struggle that's happening in the world particularly with covid to your point and the more we share about it the more the stigma will lessen and the more we'll realize this is actually um there's healing in sharing And don't you think too, I feel like now in this day and age, it's really naive to think that everybody doesn't have some low level addiction to something, you know, you drugs and alcohol are, you know, the most kind of villainized, but there's food addiction, there's technology addiction, there's work addiction, there's addiction to living through your children. I mean, there's all sorts of things. And I think addiction has a very negative connotation. I feel like maybe that's just part of our human experience. And, and and maybe there's different extremes, right? There's different levels of it. And then when it gets to a place where it is negatively affecting you and your family and those seven around you, minimum, right? Then it's something that we can treat versus really kind of demonizing whoever is struggling with it or thinking that they're weak or that they're not able to just pull themselves up and fix it themselves and get it together. And I think... You know, to your point, as long as we keep it hidden, 
and we keep that shame around it, we can never hope to really shine the light on it and improve it and help these people heal. They'll all, everybody involved. Yeah, it's true. And I often think the place to get to, if you want to get to a place of compassion and empathy, which is ultimately the destination that we need to get to with our loved ones, whether they've you know, hurt us or not, the goal, the end goal is to forgive, right? Because that's how we can truly heal. Yeah. And one of the ways to get there is by recognizing that we all, to your point, struggle with something. So I particularly love sugar. Okay. That's, and the idea, Who right? <laughs> the idea that I've right. gone on these diets that were, that ask you to like forgo sugar for 30 days. I have very much tried to do that and I have failed. So imagine Imagine where there's drinking advertisements everywhere, Super Bowl parties, there's Halloween, we just celebrated Halloween. It's That's actually one of the most, the highest drinking rates and fatality rates for DUIs in the, in the year in America because of the drink. You wow. think all the parents walking around with solo cups. Which is so toxic. And, and, and I'll tell you, I really started questioning my relationship with alcohol probably seven months ago. And I had a wonderful guest um, come on the show and she talked about living alcohol free. And I'm not going to say that I haven't had a drink in six months. I think I went like 70 days or something. And then I had one and it's just, but it, I started looking at it. And then once I started not drinking, Oh my God, like even driving my kids to school, there's all of these distributor trucks, right? And they're just billboards for liquor. I mean, it's 8 a.m. and I've probably already seen 20 pieces of marketing from big alcohol. And and I struggle with it because my husband works in the alcohol industry. So alcohol has built half of this house I'm sitting in. And I really had to question like, okay, wow, you know, um, I think I need to look at my relationship with it because I was having a nightly glass of wine, even while pregnant. Judge me if you want. I had a tiny little wine glass and I would have a nip of, you know, red wine every night just to try to feel normal. And and even that, I look back on it and I'm trying not to like shame myself, but it's like, God, bitch, you couldn't even stop for, you know, nine months. You ha- it was like a little crutch. I wasn't getting drunk, but it's so ingrained in our society. And then we think people should just be able to, to turn it off. And to your point, they're already addicted to the sugar in it. They're physically addicted. And then it's nonstop, like constant marketing. And you're expected to drink. I mean, that's the other thing. I've had clients who've decided to cut back or stop. And they're like, wow, I went to this party and it's immediately, are you pregnant or are you an addict? You know, are you an alcoholic if you're not drinking tonight at this thing? So it's so odd. You know, on one hand, we've overwhelmingly overwhelmingly weaved it into our societal culture to drink, to be expected to have an alcohol, an alcoholic drink once a week or whatever, or at big celebrations. But then on the other hand, it's like, well, you better keep it in check and not too much. And you're sloppy and weak if you let it get out of control. Yeah. I have um, three kids that are in college right now. And I was just talking yesterday to my daughter about how she wants to have a social life, but she is one of the very few girls who do not drink or use drugs. 
And um, one of her best friends is really struggling in college. She's a freshman this year um, because the atmosphere is and the social culture is so based on getting drunk that, and she's um, realized the other day that this was not the school for her. So she's actually going to come home this semester and take a semester off and, and regroup and find a better school atmosphere for her. Her parents are calling her and saying, look, just drink, just go to parties, drink. Are you kidding me? Yeah. And then, and that's not uncommon. I hear that quite a bit, having as many kids as I do with as many teenagers, the amount of parents that host parties that have, um, that say like, put your keys in a bowl and this is a safe environment and we'll allow drinking and come have fun and host at our house. And then I actually know some parents whose kids have got the kids have left their home, gotten into accidents and have been sued because this, you know, because they were allowing yeah. alcohol because there is something very um, social about drinking. I think in the yeah. next couple of years, we're going to see also a big identity shift in cannabis because it's becoming legal mm. in many, many states. I mean, in Canada, it's completely legal. And I do think that's going to be on our agenda is like, how does this affect our youth? How does this affect the health of us long term? Is this state? Is this a, an addictive quality like substance? There's going to be a lot of debate about it in the next coming years. So I don't. Well, what do you think? Do you think it is has the potential to become addictive? I will say this because this is a very controversial statement, but um, I don't rely on my thoughts about this, but I did just recently graduate from a course at Stanford that talks about the science about addiction. And one of the case studies that we spent a week going into was a young man who did become addicted to marijuana. Now, in my, what does my opinion does not matter. But if I'm getting taught that at Stanford based on, and they came up, they had a, they have like 15 to 20, you know, citations and scientific journals and papers that backed up that claim that we had to go through. I do think it is a very dangerous um, substance to introduce into anyone's life. But I also understand that is incredibly controversial because especially in the world of addiction, a lot of people use marijuana as a way to get off of a, of a more addictive, mm-hmm. harmful substance. So there's lots of different theories out there. I don't know. I'll be controversial. I absolutely think it can be addictive. And, and, and maybe it's just because of the people I know. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, oh, yeah, you know, they're smoking a joint while they're golfing. And then all of a sudden, their backyard is full of pot plants. And I'm like, okay, this is weird. You know, this is a lot. <laughs> like, this isn't, you know, this doesn't seem yeah. normal, but it, it's there. And, and, you know, when I stopped drinking, I had a lot of people reach out and say, just use some CBD with like a low level THC. And I'm like, I get it. But like, it, I wasn't having, I didn't feel like I had bad withdrawal. It was more the the ritual of pouring the glass of wine at night or whatever that I just had to replace with a with something else, right. you know, like, you know, sparkling water or mocktail or whatever. But it was like, I'll be damned if I'm going to like, 
stop drinking and then start like smoking or having edibles or whatever. It just still felt like a numbing and it can be a numbing with food or with work or with cannabis or whatever, but it's still numbing your feelings, right? And also we really need to, the, the demographic that I am the most concerned about is our youth. So if so, we know that addiction is an is an epidemic, right? And we know that we're at in massively high numbers. If a child is born with a biological parent that struggles with any kind of addiction, pornography, shopping, food, any of them, they have a sixty percent chance, and that is low. That is conservative. A sixty percent chance of struggling with addiction themselves. So. A gene, there is a genetic predisposition to what we're talking about. And so we need, we really need to introduce the idea of abstinence from all potential things that could be addictive. Now, I know like your kid's going to eat Halloween candy and we just mentioned sugar as being addictive, but I just think that there's, there's statistics that certain people do not want us to be educated on about the risks of cannabis and alcohol. There's a lot of money to be made in that industry. A lot of people are going to be very, very wealthy because of this new Mm. legalization. And I think there needs to be another voice heard in that space that protects our future generations. Yeah. And I think this the reality that I would like to see amplified is that you're not missing out on anything. It's so interesting. Along my journey, you know, I went vegetarian and then kind of on and off vegan. And everybody's like, Jesus, I mean, YOLO, like you got like what's left, you know, and all this stuff. And I'm like, but I don't feel worse not consuming meat protein, you know? And and same with alcohol. It was like, oh, you're really missing out. And I'm like, I just don't feel that way because every time I feel like, you know what, I'm going to have a glass of wine tonight. Like we went to a wedding this weekend. It was beautiful. And the bride works for this really luxurious wine company. And I thought, you know, I'm going to have a glass of red wine, right? And I had a couple and the next day I just felt like shit. And I was like, God, yeah, that was fun. But was it really worth it? Like was, did I really have more fun because I had those two glasses of wine at that wedding? I don't think so. And I was an absolute slug all day Sunday. You know, I laid on the couch. It just took me out because I have no tolerance anymore. But I think the big fear is that people are going to be like missing out on the deeper connections made when you're socializing with a drink in your hand. Do you feel like there's anything to that? I mean, look, when I was married to my ex-husband, I didn't have a drink for nine years because I loathed alcohol. I mean, I saw it in our house. I saw it being abused. I hated the stuff. I hated the smell that he had when he drank. It would come out of his pores. And I just, ugh, the slur in his voice when he said hello. And I knew there'd be, you know, he had been drinking or the fact that like, you know, my, when I had my third child, he wasn't even present in the hospital room for the baby. He left me the night before because he went on a binger. So for me, giving up alcohol, I hated that. I hated that substance so much because it was ruining our family and t- like taking away the man that I loved that it wasn't, it was not hard for me to abstain. Plus I felt like I wanted to show him 
as part of my codependency. I wanted to show him, look, yeah. look how much fun it can be to be without alcohol. <laughs> and like, right, you yeah, don't need it. Like, look, we're going to go yeah. to Baby's R Us on a Friday night and pick out a stroller. It's going to be great. <laughs> so, Michelle, what advice or hope can you give listeners who are in the situation that you were 12 years ago where? They're married to somebody who is struggling with addiction. And to your point, your site, Love Over Addiction, has these wonderful programs. And I'd love to for have you to have you talk a little bit more about them. But it's not just alcohol. Yeah. It's any substance abuse. It's pornography. It can be work addiction. It can be all of these things. Um, anytime you feel like maybe you're losing some love or support to something else that feels like an unhealthy focus. So what would you say to women who are listening to this as they're driving or they're out for a walk and they're going to go home and their husband is probably going to have a few beers with dinner and then after the kids go to bed, really get shit-faced? So I think women that are in relationships with anyone who's struggling with addiction, the the thing that they that, that worry about the most I find is should I stay or should I go? That's mm. often not where you want to start. I would advise anyone not, don't even worry about that. You don't need to answer that question right now. And by the way, if you know, you reserve the right to change your mind at any point. So, but let's put the leaving or staying aside. Let's start at the beginning, which is really taking self inventory of why did you get into this relationship in the first place? Is there something in your past that we need to readdress? Are there behaviors that we and cycles and patterns that we need to break? And so that's where I would start. It's it's the, the leaving or staying decision is almost at the very end destination because there's no right answer. There's no five steps that works for everyone. It's really truly coming up with a holistic plan for everyone by asking the right questions, doing the work individually, and then trusting the process that you're going to arrive at the right decision for you. And if it's staying, here's what I can guarantee. Your expectations are going to be set correctly. You're going to be able to stay without beating yourself up or feeling trapped because you are going to know that you can leave at any point in time, that you are not codependent on this person anymore, that the idea of them leaving you is not paralyzing or you leaving them. Um, And if you choose to stay or if you choose to go, you're going to go with a very methodical, beautiful, laid out plan um, with boundaries that you can stick to. Um, with communication skills, you can explain to your neighbors or your parents or your kids who might not understand where you're coming from. But let all that go for now. And let's just start at the beginning and get you healed. Because it is not about getting them sober. It is about getting you healthier. And so what, what step do you think it is to confide in a friend or um, a community like Love Over Addiction so that you're like not in it alone anymore? Yeah. So, okay. The friend thing is tricky because oftentimes when we tell friends or family members, they kind of project on us. So they'll tell, uh, they'll listen to us and based on their own personal beliefs, they'll, they'll tell us, I don't know how you put up with stuff like that. 
Or if I were you, I would just leave. Or, well, you can't leave because your kids, what you, what will your kid, you know, they, they kind of unload and unpack on us, which is why it's very important to find connection with other women who know what you're going through. Uh, that's key. Um, and so what, if you join the program, we offer the free secret Facebook group that's full of thousands of women from all over the world that have are walking your walk. And then we also have mentors in there that are really wonderful women who will offer advice. Because one of the things I never quite understood about Al-Anon, which is a free group you can go to, and I, I used to lead these groups, but is they have a rule in there where it's no crosstalk, which means basically no giving advice to anyone else. Your story is your story. And I understood that, but I also felt like it was kind of frustrating because I really did want these women's advice. Like I just wanted to know, what do you think I should do? Or what has worked for you? Um, And so that group allows you to ask those questions to people who really do understand. Yeah, that's huge. And you just said something, you know, the friend that I had who had the husband who's still currently um, struggling with alcohol addiction I fell into that trap. I was like, just get out of there. You're better than this. You know, I just love her so much. And she had hidden it for so many years, you know, and I, you know, going to hotels at night and, and, you know, on really bad nights and things like that. And my heart just broke and I was immediately angry at him. And I just wanted to remove her from that situation. Like, we got you, girl, like, get out of there, you know, but I think that that's really helpful that you said that because, there's, it's very different to come from a place of support versus this trying to fix it. Like here, I'm going to swoop in like she hadn't thought of that. I mean, give me a break. You know what I mean? Like she hadn't thought of that. Here I am with this, you know, advice from the cheap seats in the back when I really, in hindsight, I wish I would have just listened, you know, and come from a non-judgmental, non-self-serving place. I love that you just said that. Here's the deal. I don't think you should ever judge yourself or beat yourself up for doing that. People, because this is such a secret disease, because people don't raise their hand, the other people, the friends, the support groups are not educated on what to do. So you, you were coming from an incredibly caring, protective place, which, which is very thoughtful, but it isn't quite as helpful as one would think because we, we could be in a position where let's just, I'll just use my, I'll call myself out. I looked like someone actually said to me, you guys look like you're in a Ralph Lauren ad. Like you have the house, you have the cars you have, you know, you, you, whatever. We were broke. We were so in debt. We, I had a hundred dollar allowance to feed a family of four per week. It was, we were eating cereal most nights because addiction is expensive. So someone telling me, well, you just got to get out. I couldn't afford to financially. So that's why I had to call the shelters. So because we aren't completely all revealing about all of our insecurities when we love someone struggling with addiction, it's yeah. really hard for other people to give advice that have not been there or done that. And I think it's really hard sometimes too. I've, I've seen situations where the person who's in love with somebody specifically like addicted to alcohol, 
there's these psychiatrists that they'll go to and it's about learning how to drink in moderation. And I think sometimes the spouse or the partner wants to keep drinking and therefore they just want this person to be able to keep it under control. Can you just drink in moderation like I can? And so I think the other piece of that too is like, well, if they totally stop drinking, then does that mean I have to totally stop drinking? Because I actually like drinking is what they might Yeah, no. So how would you navigate that? No, I get asked that all the time. They're like, so wait, does this mean that I need to? Um, So first of all, I just want to say one quick thing because you kind of touched on a subject that I think is really important. Oftentimes when we go into like couples therapy or we we send our loved one in to get evaluated, the problem with those types of situations is it relies on the addict to tell the truth. And they are in the habitual, you know, pattern of lying because lying is what makes addiction, like that's how they can get away with their addiction. So it can be really frustrating as a spouse to sit there and we can quickly blame the expert in not diagnosing or being on our side, right? But the truth is is that it does rely on that, which is why you know, a lot of times we, we send our loved ones to rehab or we intervene or we think we're getting help. But unless that person wants to get sober, there truly is nothing we can do to move that process along faster. And for some, and the statistics are depressingly low, which I will not, you know, they're like in the single digits. They're, the idea of long-term sobriety is not an option. It just isn't in the possibility. So, and when I say long-term, I'm defining it as 10 years or more. For the mm-hmm. addict, like to moderately drink long-term sobriety or just to like to just forever so, like, be sober? No, wow. no relapses, just completely like I am no longer going to touch whatever I'm addicted to. Um, that's yeah. a very rare incident, which is why when I hear of people doing that, if they're like, it just... I feel like they should be our greatest heroes. We should lift them up on a pedestal because if I can't abstain from sugar for 30 days to think that somebody could abstain from something they are chemically and psychologically or have a predisposition to be addicted to for their lifetime, that is, these people are the strongest people I know. I think it feeds into this bigger picture too. And this will be really controversial is like, why are we fucking with this stuff to begin with? You know, like, why are we drinking this to begin with? And to your point, you know, I love, you know, your daughter and her friend, like that have the wherewithal to be like, you know what, I just don't want to do it. And and maybe it's going to be, you know, totally unreasonable to hope that my daughters never touch alcohol. But I've also have family members who whose fathers were addicts, and therefore they never touched it. And so it's like, if you don't start the train, you don't have to try to stop it, you know, once it catches steam and stuff like that. But I think it is a, it's a larger conversation about big alcohol and now cannabis, like, what are we doing here? We're really kind of like numbing, numbing out. And I think specifically for women too, you know, I throw around patriarchy a lot, but it's like, especially when the pandemic hit and it was just here, mommy, have more wine or the fact that people are drinking when they're trick-or-treating. And, but I have to say, this was the first year I didn't have a drink while my kids were trick-or-treating. But in hindsight, it's so fucked up that like the last few years, I'm walking around with a solo cup. Like 
this is a happy, joyous moment. Like, why would I want to not feel that fully? The alcohol didn't make me feel that joy deeper. It just masked it. But I think that that is, you know, it's a big statement to try to go up against something that is so big and there's so much money behind it. And I think there is definitely um, an incentive to keep women drunk and numbed out and not their sharpest. Yeah. I, the mommy wine culture to me, in fact, if you look at the statistics, the biggest um, demographic of, of alcoholics arising is women in their 40s and 50s. Um, it's because, I yeah, it. about what, 10 years ago, we started seeing t-shirts like, you know, mommy wine time, or I, I don't even know, they even made baby onesies alluding to, oh my you know, my mommy likes to drink wine. I remember I had a girlfriend who got on the kick where every time she would invite me out, she would say, let's go get some mama juice and then do like the little wine emoji. Right. And I, you know... Yeah. You don't want to be like the, you know, the police and be like, this is yeah, the right. wine like, police. You don't want to be the unfun girl that's like, hey, right. listen, that might not be exactly like the messaging we want to send as an example right. to our kids, but it is something that subconsciously I think it's definitely making more of a, a regular appearance in our lives for sure. And it's becoming a crutch and a dependency. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to evaluate it. I'm not necessarily saying we need to abstain from all drinking. I think it depends on the person right. and the and the you know history. But it is something that I think I started educating my kids about when they were three. And I know that sounds ridiculously young, but I no. wanted to start that messaging and programming early. What was that messaging? Well, I had, so I had three kids. So it depended on the age, right? You have to kind of tailor and you also have to tailor to the kid. So I have one child that has Asperger's who really enjoyed the data. So he is a junior in college right now. And so when he is asked by his peers, why do you not drink? For him, he has identified a gene. <laughs> And he knows the name of the, it's like 15 letters, numbers. He's like, I have gene five, two, six. And like for him, that's his comfort, right? So that's his line. Um, For my daughter, who is a freshman in college, her line is actually, she's incredibly personable and really wants to get out there how like popular addiction has become and popular is not the right word. Yeah. So she says, you know what? My biological father, because she's since been adopted by my my second husband, my biological father struggled with addiction. So it's not something that I, I choose to do. And she says, mom, every yeah. time I say that, uh, the girl who I'm saying it to or the group, someone in the group says, oh, my dad or my mom or my grandfather. So it becomes this line of communication. Yeah. Um, but then my third child. And and don't you think, sorry to like cut you off, but I feel like if there's going to be a generation to change it, it's that one, right? They're already questioning everything. Like, what is this doing to me? And you know what I mean? I just feel like they're more open to hearing that and to being able to be a thought leader, even at a frat party to say, you know what? 
I don't need that. Like it doesn't make me feel great or I have a biological predisposition to alcoholism, so I'm not going to do it. And it feels like it could be more accepted maybe than when you and I were in college where you would just be called a sissy and, you know, like peer pressured into doing a keg stand to show that you were fun. I feel like there is an opportunity for big change with these younger generations. I do too. I, and I'm not trying to be negative Nelly, I swear. And I would just use the word negative Nelly because you use the word sissy. Because so. <laughs> <laughs> we're old. Right. Um, but I think that like also they are the generation that's at highest risk too because of vaping. Hmm. We didn't have to deal with that. And you want to compare vaping to cigarette. I mean, like it's, it's horrible. The marketing that is allowed to be done yeah. on children um, and the, how addictive vaping is, it's, it's, it's criminal. It's criminal. So I yeah. do think we need to start these conversations earlier and way more regularly. Like we need to forget the idea yeah. that having one conversation is going, I mean, my kids will tell you if you ask them, if we called them right now and say, what are the top three things mom talks about at dinner? It's drugs and alcohol, sex, and, um, yeah. <laughs> Well, definitely now. I mean, everybody's talking about germs. So, okay. So let's go back to the woman who's listening to this, who has somebody in their family who's struggling with addiction. Whoops. Mike just fell everybody. What do you think is like, I, I know that you kind of identified the first step here, but can you tell us a little bit about the website and what some free resources on it are? And then also a little bit more about the sure. programs. Okay. So the free resources are really important that I have a weekly podcast. I've been doing that before even podcasts were a thing. So that's definitely a great resource to start with. If you want to see you dip your toe in, um, we also have, if mm-hmm. you go to the website, we have, a, a, if you enter your email, with every podcast, we give away like free handouts, uh, personalized questions that you can fill out. So you can get that. Plus we have a top 10 mistakes women often make when loving someone struggling with addiction because there's a lot of common mistakes we wow, make. That's great. So you can get that for free. Then we have really two signature programs. There's the beginner's program, which is love over addiction. So if you're new to the word codependency, or if you still are trying, thinking you're trying to control their drinking, um, that would be a great program to start with. If you're more seasoned and you've kind of been in the world of addiction um, and you're debating on whether the, the mega question, which is, should you stay or go? We have a program dedicated to that. And that program walks you through, you know, finances. If you go to your lawyer's office, what do you need to ask them? Um, How should you communicate with your kids about divorce? Um, If you're going to stay, let's set your expectations correctly. What do you need? What tools do you need to have? You need to have a getaway bag. What does your getaway bag look like? What's involved in it? Where do you hide it? These types of things that really help that are very specific because If there's Mm -hmm. one thing that kills me in the self-help world, it is this generic slogans that meet that you're like, give me the practical steps. Right. So that was, that's what I set out. That was my goal with these programs is like, practically speaking, this is what you need to do. Do they have to be in one of the programs to join the Facebook group or can they do that right away? You got to be in the program. But here's the deal. If you, because we're not cheap. It's, I'm not even going to lie about it. We're not cheap. 
But if you go to the website and you say, Michelle, there's no way I can afford this. We offer scholarships. So we don't want anyone Mm, to not be able to join our programs because they can't financially afford it. So you just need to fill out a little application and then you'll get approved and you can get access to the program. You're a treasure and you're... Your ability to take, you know, what they call your mess and make it your message is so inspiring. And no doubt, I know that she's helped thousands and thousands of women. And we were kind of talking about, you know, her beautiful website. And I was like, you got to get some testimonials up there. And she's like, I know, but a lot of people are still, you know, it's very secretive, right? And like, it's, it's something that you don't necessarily want to broadcast to people. And we get that. And I feel like discretion is a huge piece of your programs and what you guys have to offer as far as a safe place for support. And even if you don't know where to start, there's obviously a reason you're listening to this episode. Something resonated with you about loving somebody who is struggling with addiction. And that can be your first step to help, right? Is to reach out, get some free resources, see if the programs are speaking to you, if it feels like a fit just take action, even if it's in the smallest step today. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yes. I've enjoyed. Thank you for being here. Michelle Anderson, the website is loveoveraddiction.com. Podcast is Love Over Addiction. Check it out. 